Hello and welcome to the Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today we're kicking off a new season of the podcast in a big way. We're talking to Joel Rosenberg, uh, who's been a political consultant, a commentator, perhaps even prognosticator, and the author of several political thrillers. The latest of these is The Libyan Diversion, which is the fifth Marcus Riker novel. Uh, I've loved this series. It's pretty much been almost one a year, I think, for the past few years, except for last year. And uh, this latest book is just as good as the ones that came before it. Uh, Joel, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Josh, great to be with you again from Jerusalem, of all places. So it's nice to be with you. Very exciting. Uh, I guess just to begin, can you give us an elevator pitch for this novel and and then maybe for those who aren't familiar with the series for the series in general? Sure, let's do that first. Let's sort of zoom out. Um, So Marcus Riker is uh is my new hero i haven't i haven't done what a lot of franchise uh uh best-selling thriller writers have done which is create a franchise character and just run it you know run the table with it as it were right lee child has got jack reacher and i don't know dozens of books uh you know ian fleming with james bond and you know so forth so but i have done a whole series of series but this is the fifth as you mentioned of this series with marcus and i haven't made a decision Am I going to kill him off? Am I going to retire him? Am I going to, you know, put him in a home? I, you know, whatever. But uh, I haven't decided that yet. But the first in this series was several years ago, which was uh, the Kremlin conspiracy. And that that's where we meet Marcus. Um, he, without giving every detail, he's uh, he, after 9-11, he signed up to be a Marine. Um, he drops out of college. He wants to become a Marine. He goes into combat. Uh, in uh, multiple tours, decorated in combat in Afghanistan, in Iraq, comes back to the States, marries his college sweetheart, uh, joins the United States Secret Service. By by nature, Josh, Marcus is not an assassin. He's not a hunter-gatherer, as it were. Uh, He, you know, James Bond, 007, license to kill, assassin. Uh, Jason Bourne in the Robert Ludlum series, Assassin. Mitch Rapp in Vince Flynn's amazing series that continues even uh, after the tragic uh, early passing of Mitch to cancer a number of years ago. Uh, Mitch Rapp is an assassin, right? That is that is the classic um, thriller genre. But I started. I decided to go uh, counter to that one because the market was glutted with you know very interesting assassins. Marcus is not by definition a, a hunter. He is a protector. Now, he's able and willing to kill, but his motivation isn't to go hunt people primarily. It's to protect his country, his, its leaders, its secrets, so forth. And that's why, you know, being in the Marines, being in the United States Secret Service, almost almost classically, you know, you're there in the protective, the presidential protective division, right? And that, that's the most elite division. He worked its way up to that. And you see all that in the Kremlin conspiracy. After a whole series of tragedies in his life and, and, and leaving government service and then sort of getting pulled back in almost like the line from the from godfather three the more you try to get out the more they pull you back in right he ends up working for the central intelligence agency and uh so by the time we get to the libyan diversion uh, we know a lot about marcus we know the tragedies in his life you know when i sat down to sketch out marcus i only knew two things really I, i i knew that i wanted him to have a really strong set of of, of you know those those government skill sets that you would have to have to be a thriller uh, franchise character uh, to be a hero, uh, but as I said, I, I I flipped that by making him more of a defender protector than a hunter. 
And the other thing I knew is that he had a, a, a very serious wound in his life, not just the physical wounds from combat, which, as people will read, he gets them. You know, Tom Clancy, you almost never see him injured, and you never expect him to die, right? He just, Mission Impossible, it doesn't really matter. He's going to be with us, you know, forever, right? Or maybe only for two more films, but uh, but not because he's probably going to die. You just don't. I always want my readers to think this person could die, that the whole thing could be over. And this maybe the franchise isn't over. Maybe we shift to another character or maybe Joel just reboots and starts over again. But those are the two things I knew about him. In this case, the, the, the major wound is not just physical. It's, it's, it's spiritual. It's psychological. It's emotional because his wife and child have been murdered. So this is what we know about him. And that felt to me a complex enough character that I would be interested in knowing what happens to him book after book after book. So by the time we get to the Libyan diversion, we know his skills. The question is, how does he handle himself when somebody figures out how to neutralize those skills? In the last novel, which came out a couple of years ago, um, because you're right, I did a nonfiction book in between enemies and allies. But in the Beirut Protocol, He's captured on the Israeli uh, Beirut Lebanon, or sorry, the Israeli Lebanon border, and he and and after a big firefight, the opening of the book, and he's dragged deep under enemy lines. So now we, uh, that was an interesting novel to write, Josh, because I I now taken three books to really see what his strengths are, and how smart he is, and how strong he is, and how he works through problems like a Rubik's cube in, in real time, but. Now suddenly he's he's trapped, he's captured, literally physically cannot go anywhere, and he's got two colleagues that are more wounded than him. So even if he can smart his way out, does he run without these two? Can he run with them? So that was an interesting exercise for me is write a novel where you can't really use his skills in a normal way. This one, he's also neutralized, but differently. This now he really now Marcus Riker has been appointed by the president of the United States to hunt, hunt for the worst terrorist on the planet, a guy that goes by the nom de guerre, uh, Abu Nakba, the father of catastrophe. And he's the head of this terror organization that we've been looking at. Anyway, long story short, uh, okay, this is not his main thing, but he gets it to protect his country. He's got to go get this guy and his and his senior team. But Abu Nakba knows Marcus Riker. These two have been going head to head in book after book. And now the Libyan diversion that, that the title suggests, the, the Libyan is a play because the, the, the Abu Nakba is from Libya. His father was Libyan. So they, Marcus and his team um, at the CIA call him the Libyan. And this is his diversion. Abu Nakba essentially lures Marcus into thinking that he knows where Abu Nakba is and we can take him out in a big airstrike. But it, you know, it seems to be set up as a trap to, to, to make it look like Marcus has made a massive mistake that the site was actually a, a school and there's children that are dead. And Marcus is discredited with the president, with the national security council, with the American people. And now what does he do? Uh, and and I'll get into more of it, but I but I'm going on a little too long. So, but I like playing with this idea of how do I how do I uh, in this case create a situation in which nobody wants to listen to Marcus anymore, even though he's become the most valuable analyst slash operative in the entire agency. 
and and now Abu Nakba's found a way to neutralize him and has another plot coming. So that's that to me that was an interesting way to make it harder for me to write <laughs> and interesting for the I hope for the reader to read. Yeah, it, it brings my Marcus mind. my Marcus mug the, the the CIA mug as it were. It it brings to mind all of the the moral quandaries of warfare especially modern warfare that's all of us done at a distance you don't really see the enemy face to face that often it's all based on satellite images and intelligence and you i want to say estimated guesses but uh, you know a lot of it can be prone to the the error that marcus is accused of making um right and i mean not just him because he's relying on intelligence and information he's he is making the best decision with the information that he has but you know there's a question of was that information reliable or not um right. you know when it comes to you know real life warfare we've seen we've we've seen things like that play out where the the intelligence we thought we had was not the intelligence that we thought that we had or it wasn't as clear cut as it was presented to the american people or or wherever right so so sometimes you, you have uh on that I, it, one of the things that got it, me interested in that is um you know there are cases like uh during the uh, serbian war the kosovo serbia kosovo war in europe uh president clinton orders an airstrike turns out the united states takes out the chinese embassy in belgrade like that's bad like you can't you don't want to take out the embassy of a, of a nuclear power that hates us um that was serious and, it, and, it, and it, that's become a wound that is uh that is uh, had a long term and it was I mean, it was a long time ago now like 30 years ago but it, it still has very real implications on u.s chinese relations um but then you have one like uh cia director real life cia director george Tenet telling president george w bush it's a slam dunk that iraq has nuclear weapons now, everybody in the world, every intelligence agency in the world thought they had them because they had had them. They had used them, in, uh, chemical weapons against the, the Iraqi people, against the Kurds, for example. Uh, and so and they had hidden these things and they had kicked the inspectors out. So they were doing everything that looked like they had them again. And President Bush really felt and his senior team felt it, after 9-11, you can't just think, oh, Let's just hope nothing materializes. That you have to go preemptive. Turned out there were there were weapons of mass destruction there, but not the type of quantities that were you know existentially dangerous that the, the war had been premised on. That's bad because that demo you know now you know so so whether it's a quote small mistake one targeting error but has huge implications with a with a nuclear power or a major one where you spent a trillion dollars. To remove a man from power and take over his country and try to rebuild it and it doesn't go so well based on faulty intelligence that's you know so it's created a gun shy climate not just at the white house but at the cia and this is a this is this is has extra implications you know you don't want to be there's somewhere there's got to be a balance between gun shy and trigger happy because if you don't want either, if you're an if you're a spy agency designed to, you know, mm -hmm. and, and a military designed to steal things and 
break things and kill people. That's what the military and the spy agencies do. Mm-hmm. I think you put you put Riker. You know, we've had four novels to really get to know his character and get to know where his heart is at and get to know what his you know, emphases are. Like you said, he's not an assassin. He's someone who is going to try to figure out how to do the right thing with the least amount of loss of life with, in in a way that is, you know, seems morally upstanding, morally justified. And so putting him in that moral quandary, I think really brings a depth to the book, then hopefully also helps readers then think critically about the way in which we do warfare in, in real life. Yeah, and and this again is it, I appreciate you picking up on this, Josh, because this adds several elements to my thrillers, particularly the Marcus Riker series that you don't see in, in in my competitors. Some of which some of my competitors do much much better than me in terms of uh, you know they're, they're selling more books, whatever. But there are several elements that I have stripped out of my book, so you're not going to see uh, graphic sexuality in my book, but that's a mainstay of most, uh, most major thrillers. Uh, you're not going to read, uh, vulgarity and, you know, and obscenities in my books, which is not even thought of as a, as an issue in mainstream political thriller, military thriller, spy thriller genres. It's, I'm not saying all of them have all of those elements, but, but it's pretty commonplace, you know, and if you take James Bond, right, whether it's the movies, or or the or the novels, James Bond is basically betting down with every beautiful girl that he sees. Uh, now that has gotten confused in Hollywood by the Me Too culture and thinking that he's just objectifying women. But 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 that's the main. I mean, James Bond is the original spy thriller like franchise character. Like he, the movies going on for fifty years, they don't you know you don't even have to keep the same James Bond. I think they've had five of them, and they're probably going to go on to a six now. Uh, and, but, but, but that I don't have that. So that's an element. And then, so, so the moral code of your main character is different in mine, which makes you, you could say, now, if I do it badly, oh, this is sort of Christian fiction and it's just sort of bland and syrupy and, and fakey and, you know, come on, it just doesn't, it doesn't have any grit. Um, yeah, that's a risk. That's a big risk. Compare because you're comparing thriller readers tend to be readers of other thrillers in the genre, not all. And I think I have a lot of readers that don't read the others, but still, it mine's a mix. It's general market and Christian market. And so the question is, how do you make it more complex? That if you have a moral code that tightens your, that narrows your freedom of movement. That you're that you you're not going to sleep with a woman even if you're mentally attracted to her out in the field just because you could, because you because you because you're you're answering I and mean, he's single, but he but he has a moral code. He, he's a he's a he's a Christian. Now he's not preaching the gospel to everybody that walks because he's a Secret Service agent and a Marine. He doesn't talk that much. I mean maybe more than other Marines and Secret Service agents. But this is not you know. So anyway, that's one issue. So that's a, that's the thing. But but then that's the question of my job means I have to be alone. How can I put another person in my life? And what, how is that fair to her? On the other hand, he's fairly young, young forties. He could have he could live well if he lives through this life. He could have forty, 
50 more years? Is he going to be alone for the rest of his life? So what does he do about that? How's he going to find a woman that wants to live this life? And how does he get out of this life when he sees the worst threats in the world and feels like this is sort of why God put me on the planet, at least for a season, to be part of stopping these things? So that's an issue. And then, you know, and then what about torture? What what level of force can you use? Maybe the law allows you to go further than your own internal moral code. And anyway, those are a lot of issues that I think done right can make the character and the books more interesting because because I think a big part of thriller writing is you create your character with these great skills and then you have to find ways to knock out those skills. It's not just me doing that. Every thriller writer is 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 making the situation more and more difficult. Even if, even if you're writing nonfiction, but you're adapting it to the movies. I'll just take an example. Uh, 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 Sully, the movie about the pilot who's you know hits bird strikes coming out of LaGuardia, loses two engines, and has to calculate what do you do? This is nothing he's ever trained for, nothing that anyone has ever trained for. It's never been simulated. What if you can't get back to Newark or to LaGuardia or uh, whatever, there's something out in uh, in, in someplace else, Pelber uh, or whatever. Should you land on the Hudson? You know, like that is, that, that's real life. Well, that's what makes it interesting because you've got someone who's super skilled, who's making real time decisions and everything keeps getting worse. And then people start second guessing you. One moment you're a hero because everybody lives. And the next minute, the United States government thinks you put everybody in danger and you've got to figure out how to prove that you didn't do anything wrong. No matter what, no what the genre, you've got to make the situation, even if it's pride and prejudice, you know, you've got to make Elizabeth unhappy with Darcy, even though she's attracted with him and Darcy upset with Elizabeth, even though he's attracted. And then every complication has to come up. So you think this can't work How? but we, we know it's gonna. So how is it gonna work? Like, that's what makes it interesting. And I think uh, the extra challenges to me, I can look at them as a problem or I can look at it as an opportunity as more ways to constrain a person from doing what every other character does or could do. Yeah. Um, a lot of your novels, this one in particular, you know, obviously current events play very heavily. Now, by the time that you actually write a novel, get it to publication, those current events may not be as current anymore. Uh, you be you you you've like continually dealt with that. Uh, are there is there at any point where you would say to a current event, this is too soon for a fictional novel? Uh, you know, this needs to develop more in real life before I can fictionally explore that. Or do you feel like any any current event is fair game by the time it gets to publication? Well, no, I would actually flip that around, Josh. If it's too current, I, I can't write about it. Because so what I'm looking for are real world threats that I can take and extrapolate that are the people when they think about it will got will say, oh my gosh, I, I pray to God that never happens. That's horrifying. And then think, I would like to see how it plays out in fiction, but let's just pray it never happens in real life. But if it's really happening, then how how is a novel gonna stay ahead of it? Okay, so so a, a number of years ago I wrote a, a trilogy about ISIS. Now, 
at the time they weren't even called ISIS when I started because what what happened is I had I over the years I've had the benefit uh, the grace of God to get to know three former directors of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, and one worked for Clinton, one worked for George W. Bush, and 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 one was Mike Pompeo, uh, remains a friend and a, and a reader of the books, uh, who worked for, uh, for Trump. So for me, I, I, so I went to those first two, because I didn't know Pompeo yet, and I said, listen, uh, what keeps you guys up at night? What do you worry about? Because I need a new enemy <laughs> that not everybody's writing about. So they said, you know, both of them, and this was separate conversations, but they both independently said, you know, Joel, I, I would actually look at Al-Qaeda in Iraq. I said, okay, why? Uh, because they're morphing into something weird, spooky, maybe more dangerous than Al-Qaeda. I said, more dangerous than Al-Qaeda? Well, I mean, it'd be more dangerous than Al-Qaeda. Well, that, uh, you should go look at it. it. There's something weird going on, and, and it's, it's becoming something different. And as I, I did the research, and they, they were becoming... ISIS at that point. They weren't quite the, the caliphate. But the, and I thought, yeah, these guys are right. So I wrote this trilogy. Well, as the first book was ready for publication, ISIS exploded. When I was still writing it, President Obama said, eh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, they're not really a thing. They're like the, a JV squad in basketball. Like, like they're, you know, they're, they're, they're junior high. They're, they're, not, they're not even high school players, much less professionals. But that was not that was not what I was seeing, and not, not what I was hearing from people. And I had written a, them about them being like evil geniuses, like evil superstars, like they're going to blow up the world. And that's the novel I had written, and it was called The Third Target. The idea being Al Qaeda in Iraq had had changed. Iraq is our first target, but Syria is our second target. So who's our third target? And that was the premise of the third target, right? So yes, by the time I just began to take over 40% of Iraq, the book was ready. And, and actually the publisher moved up the timetable because it was ready and it was timely. Everybody else was like, oh, I got to I gotta go write a book about ISIS, which many people did. And, and some of them are good, right? But I tried to get ahead of it. I'll give you one more example about the Libyan diversion. So uh, as I've gotten to know Pompeo, again, when I got to know him, he was a member of the House of, you know, House of Representatives. He was on the Intelligence Committee. And one of his staffers uh, sent me a text one day, an email, uh, living here in Israel, of course, they're in Washington. And they, she says, uh, look, my boss is starting to you know, discover your, your novels and he's enjoying them. If you're ever up on Capitol Hill, when you're back in the States, come up and have a cup of coffee with him. He'd love to meet you. Like, OK. Like, who knew, right, that he was going to become the next Central Intelligence Agency director and then the 70th Secretary of State. So our friendship grew and we... We spent time together, you know, many places, including in Egypt, and it was just a very interesting friendship. And uh, but after he got out of office, I I did an interview with him in D.C. on the 20th anniversary of 9/11, and, and Enemies and Allies was just releasing. He was my first like we did this event in D.C. and we covered everything from the Iran threat and 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 the changes of in 9/11 since 9/11 over 20 years and you know, China and Russia and all the biggies. But I asked the same question in, in that public event. What keeps you up at night, Mr. Secretary? What, what are we not talking about that we ought to be talking about? And he said, Joel, the thing that worries me most these days is ungoverned spaces in northern Mexico. And he basically said the Mexican government has effectively relinquished, surrendered 
given up the control of northern Mexico on that on the American border to drug cartels, human traffickers, organized crime syndicates, uh, all kinds of bad actors. And as he described that, I was thinking, oh my gosh, that that that's terrifying. He said we could, you know, it was it was ungoverned spaces in in Afghanistan that created the environment into which Al-Qaeda was able to grow. Because I'm worried about that. And as I thought about that, Josh, for the next few weeks, sort of mulling that, yeah, that's not good. I thought, well, what if all these millions of people are coming into the United States right now, as you and I speak, 5.7 million people have crossed the American border via Mexico just since President Biden took office. 5.7 million. That's the, to me, that's the definition of an invasion. Okay. And in the United States Constitution, Article 4, Section 4, the President of the United States is tasked to protect the American people and the states from invasion. That's the word that's used, invasion. That's an invasion to me. But it's not just sex trafficking, horrible. It's not just fentanyl coming in 50 times more deadly than heroin. It's not just all the economic dislocation, the political. They've caught last year, they caught 98 people on the terror watch list trying to come into the United States via Mexico. 98. This year, already 82. And we're not even halfway through the year. The question is how many people got through that are terrorists or or affiliated with terrorists? And what are they planning? And what kind of weapons? So I that's that is the premise of the Libyan diversion that Marcus Riker has been set up. And Abu Nakba is trying to lure him, first of all, discredit him, and then lure him as far away from American shores as possible while getting his terrorists and 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 weapons of mass destruction through the Mexican border into the United States to create mass casualty attacks far worse than anything we saw on 9-11. And, and, and suddenly, and so again, if, if you try to follow the headlines, you're 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 always going to be late because it takes it takes six months to write a novel and edit it, and then it, it's going to take another year before it releases or so six eight months. So what are you going to do? But it happens right now, literally as you and I record this. Title forty two is ending. I won't get into all those details, but the point is, after five point seven million people storming into the country, yeah, some of those were apprehended, but a lot of them got away. But the point is, now the Biden administration has gotten rid of one of the few legal measures they have to deport people. And now it's going to go from bad to worse. And so the, the prospect of terrorists exploiting that was, was a premise that I was thinking about two years ago and wrote into a novel and now it releases. And now it's the number one topic in, on, on, in American media. So um, is that getting lucky? I just pray, I don't know, because I'm not predicting these things will happen in my books. I'm praying they won't, but I, I'm really, as an Israeli who's going through a rocket war right now, as you and I talk, 400 rockets, missiles have been shot at us in the last couple of days. I'm actually more worried about American national security than Israeli security right now. And that's saying something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you you mentioned this earlier, but you, you kind of said that Marcus Riker's kind of been your guy. This is the longest series that you've written do you anticipate that for the foreseeable future, this is what you're going to continue writing, or do you have other projects that are in the works? 
Well, it's interesting. It, 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 it's tied for the longest. But I was I was doing an interview, a pre-interview yesterday, and I had never actually really thought of it. My first set of novels, there were five of them. And then I did a trilogy, so three. And then I did a one-off, The Auschwitz Escape, my favorite of all of them. Then I did a trilogy. And now this is the fifth book uh, in the new series. So we got this kind of elegant... Five, three, one, three, five thing. I, that, that sounds like a plan. It's not. And I'm not going to say, I, I haven't, I, uh, I, you know, I'm not going to say. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, last question for you, then I'll let you go. Uh, it has been 20 years since the last Jihad uh, release. So, you know, you've been, you've been in this, in the publishing world. 20 years or so as you look back yeah. on your writing career crazy <laughs> what are what are some things that you wish you had done differently what are some what are some ways that you feel like you've grown as a writer uh, and as a commentator over those two decades mm. well those are good questions josh um i'm not sure if i'm prepared to give you an adequate answer I, I would say well on the a question of what would I do differently? Um, that's the thing. Look, commercially, I should have created one character and run with it for 20 years. That that would That's the model that everybody who's ahead of me has done. But I, but I don't regret it. And the reason I don't regret it is because I really was fascinated with those series. And I didn't think those series had more stories to them. I mean, I, 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 I didn't try to just write the next one because I got a contract for it. I either wrote it or I said to my publisher, I think I'm done there. I'd like to try something else. So I'm grateful that I've had the freedom. If that's cost me some level of traction, of, of momentum, sort of get the flywheel moving and, and, and you know, people just want to stick with the same characters. Okay, I, I, I'll live with that. Um, I think that uh, it, it, I, I, I think that my writing is getting better. <laughs> um, I mean, I, you know, I let the readers be the judge of that. But um, but you know, the the people that won't just blow smoke at me around me feel that the writing is getting better. And I and I think that I'm I'm learning mistakes I made in past. It, you know, all right. If you say, could you do things differently? Sure. I'd go back to individual stories and change things. Um. But, you know, I was, you know, I'm not going to change them now. I mean, you know, I uh, it, yeah, I will tell you, I, I don't know how The Last Jihad became so popular. It was the timing of it. But it's it's not the best book I've written. It's just that the, the opening a scene with a plane that's been hijacked by radical Islamist terrorists coming in on a kamikaze attack mission into an American city, starting to write that nine months before 9-11, and then leading to a war with Iraq to remove Saddam Hussein. I mean, that was so uh, unusual and timely and ahead of its curve. That, and there was literally, I thought that I, I thought that I couldn't sell that novel because I was finishing it on 9-11 and then, you know, the whole world blew up. So I thought, well, you can't send that manuscript to Manhattan and try to get, you know, like who's going to, that's not entertaining anymore, son. That's mean. So I, you know, I had an agent, but I, I, we couldn't sell the book, and and my my, my agent was in Manhattan. So you're like, yeah, that's not going to happen. So the re reason I say that is because later, when when 
my agent and a publisher decided, no, this, it, you know, if it was just a kamikaze attack, we wouldn't want to do it. But the fact that you, every other thriller writer had to wake up on 912 and say, hey, the world has just changed. I've been writing about the Cold War. I got to figure out what radical Islam is. So mine was the first novel out of the gate that, that, that imagined a new world. And in this case, was five and a half months away from an actual war with Iraq to remove Saddam Hussein when that decision had not yet been made. So that looked prescient. It took me, who nobody had ever heard of, and I'd never written a novel before, like, who is this guy? How did, how did he know this? And why, how, why does he think he knows that? Let's talk about that. And so the novel is not great. It is really a, a beginner effort, but the premise was great, and the timing was off the charts. Like, you couldn't get better than that. And then Sean Hannity got excited about the book and Rush Limbaugh got excited about the book. And well, if you have that combination, even on not that great book, yeah, can 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 do well. Eleven weeks on the New York Times list, number one on Amazon. But if I went, you know, if I went back to that one or the next one or the next one, you know, I yeah, there were things I would do differently, but it's not like you can't you can't go back. So you learn from it and hopefully, hopefully my writing is tighter. And I'm thinking more about the characters, not just these premises. I'll say this one other thing. It goes back to the question that you asked earlier, which is I'm sort of, I'm going to use the word trapped. I, I don't literally mean that, but it can be a trap to be known as a novelist who's writing political thrillers that are ripped out of tomorrow's headlines. Because I'm not actually a prophet a psychic, a clairvoyant, right? And I'm not even that bright. Like, you know, so if I was, I'd be a doctor or a lawyer or something, my Jewish skill set, you know, I'd be a banker or a hedge fund manager, you know, not a, not making things up for a living. So, so when you're in, when you, that's what you're known for, that's my brand. You're, you read a Joel Rosenberg novel and you're going to get a war game about something that could happen tomorrow or next month or next year and you better pay attention. That's challenging because that's not, you know, that's not Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. <laughs> that's not that's not Mark Twain, right? You pick, that's not Little Women or, uh, or or even James Bond. So major authors throughout the ages weren't trying to write for tomorrow's headlines. So that's a challenge, but but I think that the key for me has been to to not get trapped, to not let myself get trapped in that. Write the next story that that moves me, make it as compelling as I possibly can. I'm not trying to predict things, but you know, um, I, you know, I just what was the recent movie, um, the, the, the movie Air, mm-hmm, yeah. right now about how the Air Jordan sneaker got invented. Like, that's a great movie. <laughs> but it's not an obvious premise for a major motion picture. Like, you know, here's my pitch. You remember that sneaker that was pretty cool? Let's make a movie about it. Like, so you can make really interesting, a very interesting story about very small topics. It doesn't have to be nuclear weapons getting smuggled into the United States via Mexico, right? But the question is, how do you take whatever premise you've got and make it 
so that somebody cannot put that book down and that they pick it up from in the first place. And that is something that over 20, you know, yeah, 20 years of publishing, but 21 years of writing, this is hard. So the thing that's weird is the whole concept of being a novelist is a weird job, right? I mean, the idea that you're going to sit down at a computer with a blank screen and a cursing, I mean, that's why the word curse is right in the word cursor, because it's like it's daring you to fill this thing up with 100,000 words that people are going to pay $28 and several days of their life to read. Like, I'm Jewish. I wouldn't pay retail, but I'm grateful for the the Gentile readers out there that will pay, you know, and whatever. If they can find it cheaper or at the library, that's fine with me. But the point is, it's a weird job because you're not writing the inside story of something that's true. You're right. You're taking people into this fictional universe and you've got to get them to want to read it, to start it, and to keep going. And you have to earn it every single page because you're competing against Netflix. You're you're competing against Amazon Prime, against Paramount Plus, about about Disney. You're, You're competing against the movies about just being on a video game on your own phone. Like there's a, a thousand things people would rather do than read a novel, much less buy it. So it's so it's hard work. I'm not saying it's harder than other people's jobs, which are really hard. I'm just saying it's not normal. And doing it for 20 years, um, you learn some lessons or you get out because it's not sustainable unless you figure out what your groove is and why you're doing it and that you love it. Otherwise do something else. Yeah. Do you feel like that? You know, I think pretty much since the beginning is Tyndale, the only publisher you've had. I'm trying to think of your, no, the, the first two books, uh, the last Jihad and the last days were a St. Martin's press okay. um, imprint uh, called Tor Forge. Uh, they were great. I love them. Uh, but as I started to move into other content, uh, including you having some spiritual themes in them because I'm an evangelical and, you know, my books are about life and death and tragedy and loss. So uh, it, it strikes me as odd when other books don't seem to have any spiritual reference point. Nobody's thinking about, if I do this, I could die. What happens to me when I die? Like, I don't want to preach in these books, but I want to explore some of these topics. And they didn't quite know what to do with that. That wasn't they were uncomfortable. So I, I I didn't want to get pigeonholed as a Christian author, but Tyndale, you know, it sold sixty five million copies of one of its you know big series, and they knew how to operate in the secular market. They knew how to operate in the Christian market, and and I thought you know, and they and they got me. They they understood, and they weren't asking me to preach the gospel in every book or have a bunch of Bible verses. They they liked the grittiness of my character. They just liked the, all those constraints that we talked about earlier. They hadn't really seen somebody doing something quite like that. And they they invited me to come in and, and I liked their experience and that they were giving me freedom. You know, one of my main characters in one of the series was a Muslim, mm. a Muslim published by, you know, he was the main character. He wasn't a devout Muslim, but, you know, it's an Iranian Muslim who nominal, but who joins the CIA to sneak into Iran. It was pretty amazing that they let me do that, you know, as a Christian publisher. But I, I'll add that Christian publishing, oh, the Christian bookstore market is is dying. Independent bookstores are struggling, and Christian bookstores are dying. And and so I, I'm fortunate that that Tyndale knows how to operate in both. So there are people that will only buy in Christian bookstores. 
right. or, or Christian book outlets uh, online or whatever. But 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 increasingly, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, you know, there, there's more than two thousand bookstores that don't exist anymore that existed when I started. So there are a lot of headwinds. Obviously, Barnes and Noble in brick and mortar and Amazon online, they're the big kahunas and they, uh, the behemoths, and, they, and they've been great for my books. They, they, they seem to enjoy them and they sell a lot of them. And, and so I'm grateful. But yeah, it's not just writing good stories and, and having great covers and all the rest and marketing, but, but navigating through, <laughs> because, because basically if you're a new writer, you might get a shot or two because there's, because there's eBooks. And so it's, it's cheap to put an author out at a buck 99 or 99 cents and try to see if it sticks because you don't have to print anything and ship anything. And the best sellers, uh, I'm the best selling in my company. So that's an advantage. Uh, very few novels are published in hardcover anymore. They're published. Most authors are published in softcover and ebook, but I'm, but I come out in, in, in hardcover every time. And, uh, but the minimalist writer, the person that did some books and sort of got some traction, but didn't quite fully break out, they're the people that are struggling the most because the cost structure for publishers are, it's hard for them. And, 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 and so, and that's discouraging because it, the economics of the industry are changing. So anyway, that's my, it's just a lights a fire under me to try to, you know, compete really hard, not just against my friends, Brad Thor and Kyle Mills and, you know, uh, you know, uh, Don Bentley and these guys, Mark Green, and he, they write great stories. So I got to, that's, that's the way I think of my competition. How do I, not to beat them, for, but in terms of the stay up, in terms of story content that will compete with them. But it's also, you got to make sure that you're still viable or you're going to slip and publishers will say, yeah, we can't really do that anymore. And yeah. then you have to go find a real job. Yeah. I think you have you have a really good audience in that uh, you're providing a genre for an audience that may not you know, they may not go out and read a, a secular political thriller because of the content that that we had discussed. Um, but particularly, I think for for um, men and male authors in Christian fiction are very underrepresented. And to find mm -hmm. someone who can like fill that niche to say, oh, here's here's someone who's talking about topics that are more male geared geared toward men, uh, but aren't James Bond, James Patterson, um, you know, it isn't sort of over there. It's lacking. It's lacking in in Christian yeah. fiction, and I think you kind of fulfill that that niche. Uh, well, and also trying to compete hard in these in the secular market. To pull people in that would read my work that wouldn't naturally think that would that I'm somebody they would want to read. Um, and can I can I attract them? Can I interest them? Can I hold them? Yeah, it, it makes life interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, Joel, thank you for taking time to be on the podcast. Again, the book is The Libyan Diversion. It's the fifth book in the Marcus Riker series. But if you've not read the first four, you, you're probably good. You're probably good to read the fifth one. I'll let, I'll let Joel tell you what you need to know. Uh, on that. Yeah, no, I think I think you can read. Uh, the, the, this one is written that if you just started with this, you'd be good. And I think it would interest you to go. All right, now who is this Marcus? And and then you can go back and start with the Kremlin conspiracy and catch up. But no, you can dive right into the Libyan diversion yeah. without feeling lost. Yeah, so pick it up wherever you buy your books from. If it's from your local independent bookseller, that's best. Uh, get them to stock the books. Uh, if not, you know, there's 
plenty of different places you can get the book. So Joel, again, thank you for your time.